Welcome to Shalom Ariel and welcome to part five of our series in the book of Leviticus with Messianic leader Jacques Isaac Gabizon. The title of this study is Where is your Mincha? Where is your offering to the Lord? What is a Mincha offering? Although this word has been translated as grain offering, it limits the scope of our understanding if we were to leave it just at that. It's something much more. It's our gift. It's our tribute to the Lord. What we previously saw was that we first needed the korban, the blood sacrifice. And once that was established, we could then offer that offering from our heart, the offering of our deep gratitude to the Lord. And this, of course, could be done through the many tithes, through our praises, through our prayer, and through our choice, living a sanctified and changed life. As we read through the many ways we are allowed to offer this mincha, we should be deeply impressed by the freedom that God gives us in our presentation of the mincha to Him. For example, how many ways can we cook and serve chicken? Well, it could be broiled and braised and boiled and roasted and stir-fried and sautéed. And so isn't it amazing that the Lord allowed the Israelite the freedom to choose what kind of offering, what kind of mincha they could bring. They could bring the mincha either raw or cooked, or grilled, or pan-fried, and they were able to choose between wheat or parched barley. Isn't it wonderful that the Lord gives us such freedom to choose how we want to present our thanks to Him? Where the Spirit is, there is freedom and liberty. Remembering, however, that in all this diversity, the contrite heart is the basic bread and butter for all and any service we want to give to Him. Be blessed as you listen into today's program with Messianic leader Jacques Isaac Gabizon and Shalom Shalom. Now, I would like to bring your attention to last week's and this week's parasha. Parasha, that is the portion of the prophet that is read every week at the synagogues. Originally, when at the time of Yeshua, both the parasha and the Haftorah were weekly read, the parasha, by the way, itself consists of that weekly portion of the Torah that is read every week, or the five book of Moses. At that time, this cycle of reading extended over three year, a three-year period, but at about the second century, and for some reason, it was changed to a one-year cycle, but without, with many consequences, I would say. Because in the process, they obviously had to remove many parts of the prophet in order to fit the one-year cycle. Last week, Parasha was Isaiah chapter 51, 12 to 52, 12. And this week's Parasha, they jumped to Isaiah 54, verses 1 to 10. What has gone missing in between the two? is that powerful and so clear portion about the Messiah which speaks of his death and resurrection and how he saves Israel and how he saves the whole world for their sins. The omitted portion from Isaiah 52.13 to Isaiah 53.12, you know, speaks of the whole work of the Messiah. It should have been read today according to the original Haftarah. It is, I want to tell you, a very unfortunate move. Now, not only because by reducing the three-year cycle to one year, they have now to rush through the Torah, but it also deprives the reader of great passages in the prophets, like Isaiah 53. 
You know, at the time of Jesus, they read. They knew and they read this powerful passage in the synagogues. And it was very well known. The Talmud mentions Isaiah 53, along with the Midrash Rabbah and many ancient rabbinical writings. And furthermore, Yeshua and the disciple often quoted it in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, along with Paul, Peter, and the author of the book of Hebrews cited it and always attributed it to Yeshua. Isaiah 53, I want to tell you, is directly quoted in the New Testament 60 times, and over 40 times it is alluded to. The argument is that some other passages of the prophets were omitted, so this one as well. But this one is so major, and it is good for us to remind them let us now open our Bible to the book of Leviticus, chapter 2. Chapter 2 of this often considered mysterious book, that is Leviticus, of course. While there are many things in the scriptures we cannot fully comprehend, this book turns out to be one of the most practical ones in our lives. In chapter 2, we're moving from animal sacrifices to the mincha. This offering has been translated as grain offering, but this limits the larger scope of the Hebrew title. What is the mincha? It is a gift. It is a tribute like one we give to a king. Like when the nations came to see Solomon, they brought many gifts, many minchot, the plural, minchot. As for the mincha here in Leviticus 2, because the Lord has opened the way and allowed the Israelites to bring their sacrifices in chapter 1. That is, to approach him through blood sacrifice, as we saw in the burnt offering. Now that they are near God, they show their appreciation by giving a mincha, which is a gift of deep gratitude for what he has done for them. As for the believers today, because the Messiah gave himself for us, and because of the eternal life we now have in him, we also offer our mincha, which is our, our tithes, which is our praise, our, our reformed life, uh, which proves our true thanks to him. This is what this offering is about. The title of this, story, this study, that is, is, Where is your mincha? How can we thank the Lord for this great act of salvation he has offered to us? How can we be in tune in, and in fellowship with him? This chapter is about to show us God's heart and how our heart should anger for that very close relationship with him, with him, a relationship that he so desired to have with us. Now, let me give you the main points of the chapter before we look into the elements. What is striking, as you read through that chapter, is the great freedom given to us in our approach with the Mincha offering. Here, I want to tell you as, you, as you read this chapter, the mood changes. Once a person is in the compound where God is, there is such a liberty of worship and approach. There, the Lord asks the Israelites to bring three main ingredients, that is the flour, the oil, and the frankincense. And, you, you know, this is what they had to bring. You could offer them in many ways. You could offer them raw, like it says in verse 2, or you can bring them in the form of a cake, as in verse 4. That cake is actually, the word in Hebrew is challah, just like the challah we, we use every Friday. 
Or perhaps you prefer to bring it in the form of a wafer, also in verse 4. Or maybe you like it better when it's grilled, in verse 5. Or maybe you prefer it fried in a pan, verse 7. Or in the form of grits that is grounded, as you read in verse 14. And depending on the season, you can, it can be of wheat, it can be of barley. And in verse 14, we read of, of the Bikurim. It says, also, you will bring the Mincha of Bikurim. This includes anything produced by the earth or fruits also from the trees. The question is, what, how do you like it? What is your preferred dish? How do you like to prepare it? The Lord likes it the way you like it. Come, he says, come and we will fellowship together. The verse which, the verse which connects this, this chapter to the Brit Hadasha, that is the New Testament, is found in this great verse, Second Corinthians 3.17. This is what it says. Now the Lord is the Spirit. And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is what? Liberty. Freedom. Where God is present, there is freedom. Here Paul is speaking in the context of the Mosaic law. We often think of the law as stiff, as stern. But this law was designed to give freedom to men and to women. This, there is freedom. Freedom from oppression, if you read the Mosaic law. From psychological confinement. But the Lord frees us from these things. This word, by the way, liberty in this verse, in secular Greek, it was the name of a dance, apparently, a well-known dance. Dancing is freedom of action, liberty of movement. For once we are in the Lord, we can actually dance our way to heaven. So this chapter 2 of Leviticus tells us that we have freedom in, for instance, our style of worship. Some read hymns, others have a band, others wear kippahs and talits. It is as you wish. It is also the freedom for a congregation to choose the day of the week to worship, to observe any tradition it wishes, or to be vegetarian, or to fast as often as they want. Each person is so different in his or her ways to approach God is, is unique, and within a set of fundamental and essential rules, there is so much freedom to express one's preferences and character to God. And what we further are learning that is in this array of different things is that God is into the minute details. It's incredible as he sees every single facet of our lives. He sees all things and knows what we like best, what is best for us. He is ready to walk along with us. We remember that the, wor the words of Yeshua, you know, when he wanted to encourage the disciples for the work that was in front of them, he told them, and he's telling us as well, that even the very hair of your head are all numbered. Matthew 10.30. God is so great and awesome that he desires to take a deep interest in even the most intimate details of our lives. They say that we have about 100,000 hair on our head and that we lose about 200 hair a day. Don't worry about it. God knows them all, right? But we learned something else here that is, I want to tell you, very valuable. As God sees the minute details of our lives, he also expects us to look and to take care of those details as well. This is where a great and fruitful journey for the believers will begin, when we do that. 
Successful living in God is also in the minute details of our lives. Yeshua made this clear in the parable of the servant. This is his conclusion in Luke 16.10. He says, he who is faithful in a very small thing is faithful also in much. And he who is unrighteous in the very little thing is unrighteous also in much. So it all begins in the small points and elements of our lives. How we live, how we think, and consequently how we behave as well. David knew this, by the way. This beautiful Psalm 139. He told God, he says, where can I go? Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? And there he lists the things. Heaven, you're there, of course. Shale, you are there. To the remotest part of the sea, you are there. And God's strong presence was a sure sign of comfort. For he says toward the end, how precious also are your thoughts to me. We need to meditate on these beautiful things. Now back to live in Leviticus 2. There is something again special about the mincha. In verse 2, the Spirit of God, and for the first time in Leviticus and in the Mosaic Law, describes this offering as a memorial portion on the altar. A memorial, hazara, from the word zakar, zakar, to think about, to meditate and remember this word is only applied for the Mishnah, for that is the Mincha offering. For this moment of reunion between us and God is so precious to him. It should be precious to us as well. Now, how is this freedom illustrated? Let us now go to verse 1, chapter 2. I will use the Hebrew word mincha again for grain offering to stay within the greater scope of its message. It says, now when anyone presents a mincha as an offering to the Lord, his offering, korban, shall be of fine flour, and he shall pour oil on it and put frankincense on it. These three ingredients which are given should characterize the life of a true believer in Yeshua. Fine flour, oil, and frankincense. Each one, again, of these will bring out the best of our belongings and the best also of Yeshua as it tells us that whatever we do, however we live, we ought to include him in every facet of our lives. Let us begin with the fine flour. One word, by the way, in Hebrew is solet. This was the most expensive type of flour for it was so finely crushed and refined that it was of the purest type possible. It was taken from the exclusive inner kernel of the wheat, showing that the person was to give his best. And the process of getting this flour reminds us of what? of the suffering Messiah. It was to be crushed. It was grinded, that is, and as he was when he took our sins. Yeshua himself, Jesus himself, referred to this process of getting flour, right, and linked it to his suffering, to his death and resurrection in the Gospel of John. In chapter 12, of this book of John. There was a small group of Gentiles who came to see him. They came to Philip and asked them, in John 12, 21, Sir, we wish to see Jesus. They heard of him. They heard about what he did. So when their presence was reported to Yeshua, he did not answer their question directly. But his answer brings us right to this fine flower of the Mincha. 
He brought them forward to his death and resurrection and glorification where we can really see Yeshua in his fullness. This is actually what he said. The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. For if it dies, it bears much fruits. The grain, in order to, to become white as snow and able to feed, needs first to die. Here Yeshua is speaking of his death and resurrection. He became the sorrette, the fine flower that is offered. However, this illustration is there for us as well. We are also to become holy as the Lord is holy, it says. For, for the, the mincha is a constant reminder of who the Messiah is, who we should be like. Notice the words, it remains alone if it is not crushed. The word alone means solitary. It was used for one who is lacking companionship. On the one hand, one can see, we can see Yeshua's death so that he could have us as friends and companions. Because why? Because Yeshua is love. That is nature. And love requires that we share it with others. On the other hand, accepting Yeshua as a personal savior, you cannot just keep quiet about it. You want to share this great news with others. The believer then will produce his best and his best once he dies to sin. It is only then that he or she will find a friend in Yeshua and with others. By the way, this is explained, I believe, by Paul in Romans 14, 7 to 8. See what he says. For not one of us lives for himself. And not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. If we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. Our life is nested in the hands of the Lord. It must be him first always. But the process here is that once we live in him, then we can sprinkle and pour out our blessings on others. The relationship always, remember, vertical first and then horizontal. But this mincha also recalls one important passage in the Hebrew scriptures. See something very interesting. It is in Genesis 18.6, where the Lord, and the word here is yud hevavhe, visited Abraham. For this is how the text begins. See what Abraham offers him then. In Genesis 18.1, we read, Now the Lord Jehovah appeared. Can you imagine? He appeared physically to him by the oaks of Mamre while he was sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day. This, by the way, is a beautiful passage. Abraham could actually could not believe that he was hosting God. So he gets so excited. And in such a hurry, he tells Sarah in verse 6, quickly, make ready three measures of fine flour. This is the first time that the word fine flour, solet, is mentioned in the Bible. It was offered to God as it is in the mincha. In the text, in this text, the orig original Hebrew have no verb, by the way, in that sentence. Because Abraham was so excited. As if he yelled to Sarah, Sarah, three measures of fine meal. No time for the verb. But Sarah prepared three measures of solet. It became the flour for the offering to God. This is, by the way, the first of 53 times the word solet, fine flour, is mentioned. It was an offering again to the Lord. And the quantity, by the way, in this passage 
in the three measures of fine meal is a lot, a lot. A measure which is a, a seed in Hebrew is almost eight liters. So three seed would be about 24 volume liters of fine flour. I don't know who, who's going to eat all that, right? Who was, Abraham, by the way, gave his best and a lot of it. Let us move to the other ingredient. See that the solet had to be mixed with what? Oil. Oil. In Hebrew is shemem, which is generally olive oil. And the manner with which they extracted the oil from the olive is very much like they extracted the flour from the grain. Through breaking it and through grinding it, it was so the oil, with the oil, it was with the flour. Also, together, they speak together of the great suffering of the Messiah. It is from the word Shemem that we get our word what? Getsemani. Getsemani which means actually oil pressed, oil pressed, so fitting for the event that were taking place in there. The name is Aramaic, Gat for press, and Shaman for oil. The Garden of Gethsemane, this is where I believe the greatest spiritual battle took place. You know, the crucifixion was only a few hours, and Yeshua reached it a most critical point in his life on earth. Because at this very moment, he was to appropriate on himself all the sins of the world, all the sins which were ever committed in history. And every time they were about to bring the mincha, as far as we're concerned, we can remember all this suffering that he went through. So the oil is also a strong reminder of the anointing of the Holy Spirit who comes in us at the time of salvation and help us to look like a Messiah by strengthening us over and over. And when we follow the word shemen, by the way, oil, and how in the scriptures, and how it gave birth to other words, we can see a great path of sanctification through the Spirit. Let me briefly show you the evolution of this word. First, we have the word shemem, right? Oil, as you can see in the screen. Second, we have the word shaman, which means fat or rich, where a third other word stemmed, mishman, which means fatness, and a fourth, machman, which means like the word for richly prepared food. And with time, this word, shaman, came to designate people who are stronger and even stronger and most powerful enemies fighters. This is what we learned in Judges 3.29. It says the Israelites, when they were walking with God, they struck down at that time about 10,000 Moabites, all shaman, that is robust and valiant. As the oil symbolizes the works of the Messiah and his spirit in us, when we walk with God and give our mincha, we are on our way to become shaman, strong and ready to go forward. We look forward to hearing the concluding portion of this message, Sermon 5, on our next program. But for now, we invite you to join us for a Q&A with Messianic leader Jacques-Isaac Abizon. Today's question deals with the word bribe. And by biblical standards, we ask, is it right or is it wrong to take a bribe? So let's listen in for more. I have a question about the two verses which come from Proverbs 17. Proverbs 17:8 reads, A bribe is a charm in the sight of its owner. Wherever he turns, he prospers. Verse 23 reads, A wicked man receives a bribe 
from the bosom, in secret to pervert the ways of justice. How might we understand these two seemingly contradictory verses? How is it that in the first verse, the bribe causes a man to prosper, yet in the second verse, the bribe is seen as a perversion of justice? Thank you for your insight. Uh, thank you for your question. Now, well, the word bribe in the Hebrew has usually a negative connotation. It is also used in a positive way and sometimes translated with words like reward or tribute or gift, as in First King fifteen nineteen, when King Asa of Judah sent gifts to the king of Aram to make a peace treaty with him, or when King Ahaz sent his gifts to the king of Assyria in Second King chapter 16. However, both passages in Proverbs 17, 8 and 23 are negative and speak of the evil of giving a bribe. A better translation comes from the Tanakh, from the JPS. A bribe seems like a charm to him who uses it not is a charm. Furthermore, throughout the book of Proverbs, the word bribe, sohat, is used four times and always used in a negative sense. Now, while it is wrong to bribe someone to get our way, it is not wrong to give a gift to someone to help a first encounter or to mend an issue like it is written in Proverbs 18.16. A man's gift makes room for him and brings him before great men. And sometimes, we can be at odds with a person like Jacob was who sent gifts to his brother Esau to sue them. We read in Genesis 32, then he selected from what he had with him a present for his brother Esau. The, the Hebrew word in both these latter verses is not bribe, sohat, but the Hebrew mincha which is a gift, a tribute. In these cases, a question now arises. Was Jacob or the men sending gifts were using something wrong to achieve their goals? Not at all. Concerning Jacob, for instance, he used whatever work to save his family and subdue Esau's evil anger. We can say that he did what Yeshua asked us to be in Matthew 10.16. Behold, I sent you as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore... Listen to what he says. Be wise as serpents and harmless as doves. Serpents and doves are two opposite animals. Only one is sly, powerful. The other is innocent and so fragile. Yet we are called to be the best of both. Shrewd or wise as serpents. This is the same word, the Septuagint, translated in Genesis 3.1 when it says that the serpent was more cunning, that is wiser than any other beast. Though he was then bent for evil, we ought to be cunning as well, but within all legalities. In the Christian world, there is a laissez-faire, in fact, a laissez-faire that is an attitude of accepting mediocrity and letting things take their own course in the name of love and tolerance. But love and tolerance do not allow for such an attitude. Uh, coming from a business background, I can tell you that there's a sea of difference between most Christian organizations and those of the world out there. The difference is in the way the others in the world are aggressive and progressive in their desire to raise their profit. I wish we had a similar drive in our organizations. Not for money, of course, money profit, but in order to better reach out and preach the gospel. 
Shalom Ariel is a daily radio program emphasizing the Jewish perspective of Scripture. God is not through dealing with Israel, nor will He renege any of the promises He has made to her. Our teacher for this program, Jacques Isaac Gabizon, is a Messianic Jewish believer and Messianic leader at Beth Ariel Congregation right here in Montreal. If you've been encouraged by the messages, we'd love to hear from you. Give us a call at one 685 5902 or you may write us at info at Beth Ariel, B-E-T-H-A-R-I-E-L, all one word, dot C-A. You are also welcome to join us for our Saturday morning services. We are located at 6297 Monkland Boulevard, corner of Madison in NDG. The message is given in English, but we do offer simultaneous translation into French and Russian. Services begin at 11 a.m. We have Shabbat school for children of all ages, up to and including teens. You may also download audio messages from our website at bethariel.ca and enjoy other in-depth teaching from Jacques Isaac. If you would like to sign up for informative newsletters, log on to our website and add your name to our email list. Shalom Ariel is a listener-supported program. If you have it on your heart to donate, it will be a great blessing for the continuing ministry and outreach of Beth Ariel. Thank you and Shalom Shalom. Shalom.